your only hope of obeying God's commands to us is if God gives us the power to obey them. And that power comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will continue his current series with part six of Watch Where You Step. It's a study of the differences between biblical wisdom and human foolishness. Last time we began to look at the New Testament ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. While this topic is often fraught with controversy, it is essential for believers to understand who the Spirit is and why His ministry is of utmost importance with regard to biblical wisdom. And today, Tom will present four main misconceptions about the ministry of the Spirit. Tom will also unpack the biblical truth that for any type of spiritual maturity or growth to occur in believers, they must be filled with the Spirit. Keep that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. In the context of 1 Samuel, he already was a true believer in God, but when he was anointed to be the king of Israel, the Spirit of God came on him and specially empowered him to fulfill that unique role, that unique function. Theologians sometimes call this special empowering of the kings the theocratic anointing. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't. But that was primarily the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament, those three things, regeneration, sanctification, and empowering. Now, let's ask the question then, how did the Spirit's role change after Christ, after specifically that unique manifestation of His presence at Pentecost in Acts 2? How did His role change after that? Primarily, two ways. He was still regenerating, he was still sanctifying, and from time to time still specially empowering people. But there were two things that changed that weren't true in the Old Testament that become true in the New Testament. Number one, the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. If you read the Old Testament carefully, there are a few people in whom the Spirit is said to dwell. Joshua, for example, in Numbers 27, 18. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2.2. Daniel in Daniel 4, 8 and 9. Micah, the prophet, in his prophecy, chapter 3, verse 8. All of those are said to have the Spirit in them. But, by and large, when you look at the Old Testament, that was not a common way to refer to true believers in the Old Testament. It's, there's no indication that that was a common reality in the time of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus tells us that the Spirit now permanently indwells the believer in the New Testament time in some way that's distinct from what he did in the Old Testament time. Let me show you this. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14. This is the night, of course, before his crucifixion. It's in the upper room discourse. John 14, 16. Look back at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How's that going to happen? Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, there are a couple of expressions you need to notice here. Verse 16, that he may be with you. Notice this is poised as the future. This has not yet happened, that he may be, and the, the Greek word for with here is a word which means in your midst, in the middle of you, in the middle of a group, amongst you, however you want to say it, in the middle. Verse 17, there's another interesting expression. Notice he says, he abides, into the verse, he abides with you. Notice that's present tense. Already that's a reality, Jesus says. He currently abides, and here he uses a different Greek word for with. It's the word para, which means by your side. He currently abides by your side. And then in verse 17, he ends it with, and he will be in the future in you. That is, within you, inside of you. Now, this clearly implies that in the Old Testament, before the new covenant ministry of the Spirit really came and began at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Spirit was with them in the sense that he was by their side. But Jesus tells his disciples here on the night before the crucifixion that when he leaves, there's going to be a change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be to their advantage. In fact, keep your thumb there and turn over a page to John 16, 7. This is shocking, really. How many of us would love to have lived in the time of Christ, to have accompanied him and his disciple, and would see that as far superior to what we enjoy today. Is that not true? Well, listen to Jesus. 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So something the Spirit is going to do and to be is an advantage to us over the personal presence of Christ. Now, notice what he promises here. Verse 16, the Spirit will be among them, that is in the middle of them, forever. It's not going to come and go. And verse 17 he will specially manifest his presence inside you, in you, inside every believer's mind and heart in some new and more powerful way than in the old covenant. Certainly he was with them in the old covenant. Certainly he was sanctifying, regenerating in the Old Testament times. But there's something more powerful and different about his ministry in this indwelling. What is it? Well, I can't give you all the ins and outs of it, but I can give you a little hint. Turn back to Ezekiel, because in Ezekiel, you have the promise of the new covenant that's ours in Christ. This is the covenant under which we live, the New Testament tells us, which Christ died to seal with his own blood. Look at Ezekiel 36, because in Ezekiel 36, he explains this new covenant, what it's going to look like. In Jeremiah, it's called the New Covenant. Here, it's not called by that name, but it's exactly the same promise. But notice what he says. Verse 24, 
Jeremiah 36, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land. There's definitely a Jewish element of the new covenant as well as Gentiles as we learn from the New Testament. But notice what he does spiritually to everyone who's under the new covenant. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. So I'm gonna cleanse you, I'm gonna forgive you, I'm gonna wash away your sin and its guilt. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit or attitude within you, and I will remove the heart of stone that you have, and I'm going to give you a true, living, breathing, beating heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a heart transplant, God says. I'm going to give you a new heart, different motives, different desires, different loves. Now watch verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. Here it is. Why? Notice the rest of the verse. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, we have the Spirit within us causing us, teaching us, causing us to walk in the Word of God. There is a new force and a new power to the work of the Spirit under the new covenant. He indwells us permanently. Now, don't think when you hear that, you know, the Spirit can't be, it's not like the Spirit just sort of fills up your body and that's the only place He is. The Spirit, by nature, is God, and God, by nature, is infinite. He can't be contained to a single space. He can't be contained to the creation. He transcends all of that. What it means, when we talk about the Spirit indwelling you, What we mean by that is the Spirit specially manifests His presence in your mind and heart for your spiritual growth and advantage. That's what we mean. Now, there's a second change in the ministry of the Spirit from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Not only the indwelling of the Spirit, but secondly, the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. Prior to Pentecost, there was no baptism with the Spirit. John prophesied, you remember, that it would come. In Matthew chapter 3, he says, there's one coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you, what? With the Holy Spirit. Jesus will initiate this. Well, you fast forward through Jesus' ministry, and it still hasn't happened. In fact, after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection, on the day of his ascension, in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he says this to his apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John said it would happen. Jesus is going to fulfill it, but he's going to fulfill it 10 days after he ascends at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes and baptizes them. Now, um, what does that mean? It simply means to immerse us into Christ, into the body of Christ, to connect us to Christ inseparably and to connect us to one another inseparably. When you read through the book of Acts, there's a transition time when there's some oddities going on, but by the time you get to Paul's letter to to Corinth, every believer is baptized into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. Let me show you this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit, mark these words, we all, we all, no exceptions, believers, were baptized. 
past tense, already happened, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So at the moment of salvation, we are immersed into Christ. We are connected to Christ and to everyone else who's a part of his family, a part of his kingdom. We're baptized into the body of Christ. That was a new thing with the new covenant. Now, it's important to note that both of these new actions of the Spirit, indwelling the believers, the baptism of the Spirit, are events that occur at the moment of salvation. You see that here in 1 Corinthians 12. We were all baptized. It happened in the past as an event, obviously, at the moment of salvation. Romans 8, verse 9 says, the Spirit dwells in you, and if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to Christ. So, when you come to belong to Christ, you get the Spirit. So both of those things have already happened. If you're a Christian, you have already been immersed, connected to Christ through what's called the baptism of the Spirit, the moment of salvation, and you now have his special abiding presence in your heart and mind. Now, that's the unique role of the Spirit in the New Testament. That all seems pretty clear. So why is there so much confusion surrounding the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I want us just briefly to consider a second issue, the current confusion about the Spirit. Why is there so much confusion about the work of the Spirit? Well, over the last hundred years, there have been three movements that have badly skewed popular Christian understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me give them to you briefly. The first movement was the Pentecostal movement. It began in the U.S. in the early 1900s. There's disagreement whether it was 1901, 1906. But the Pentecostal movement, its primary emphasis was the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not come at salvation. Instead, it comes later in the life. And it's usually accompanied by speaking in tongues. And all of the spiritual gifts, including the miraculous gifts in the New Testament, are to be sought and used today. The Pentecostal movement was mostly tied to the assemblies of God as we know them today. The second movement came in the 60s and 70s. We call it the charismatic movement. It was connected to the renewal movement of the 60s and the 70s. It was not tied to any particular denomination. In fact, there are charismatic Catholics, charismatic Protestants of all shapes and sizes and, and backgrounds. But the charismatic movement has this in common. There ought to be a practice of all the spiritual gifts, including the miraculous, often with an emphasis on speaking in tongues. That was one of their major foci. Now, the third movement is called the third wave. This began in the 1980s, very similar emphasis to the first two. It was named the third wave because of a seminary professor at Fuller named Peter Wagner, who was instrumental in beginning this movement. And he said, the Pentecostal movement was the first wave, the charismatic movement was the second wave, we're the third wave. And they believe in practicing all of the New Testament gifts, including the miraculous, but the, they stress that the preaching of the gospel should be accompanied by signs and wonders. That's how people are going to believe. If there are signs and wonders like there were in the New Testament times, they do teach that the baptism of the Spirit occurs with every believer at the moment of salvation, but they think after that we all ought to seek other experiences, and they call those experiences the filling with the Spirit. Their primary association is with the vineyard churches, uh, based originally out of California, and now they've spread around. 
Now, when it comes to those three movements and the work of the Spirit, their emphasis was on the subjective, the experiential, and the miraculous. So the teaching about the Spirit is in many cases badly skewed from what the Scriptures teach. And their influence has spread far beyond those movements. There are Christians sitting here today, sitting in churches that wouldn't even begin to embrace or say they're connected with any of these movements that have been influenced by their teaching. So before we can come to a full understanding of what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit, we need to tear down a couple of misunderstandings that most people carry with them. Let me briefly give you the common flawed views of the filling of the Spirit. Here's what it's not. Okay, here's the confusion. Larry Pettigrew, in his helpful book, The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, identifies several misunderstandings about the filling of the Spirit that have grown out of those movements and been influenced by those movements. Let me give them to you briefly. Misunderstanding number one, the filling with the Spirit is a second crisis experience after salvation that is identical to the baptism of the Spirit. So in other words, you're looking for something after salvation that is both at the same time the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. People who are non-Pentecostals like Charles Finney, Dwight Moody, R.A. Torrey taught that that kind of filling and baptism of the Spirit gave you special power for service. You'd be zapped by God and suddenly you would be much more capable to do whatever it was you needed to do. Pentecostals say that it gives you the ability to speak in tongues, but there's the second crisis experience that is both the filling of the Spirit and baptism of the Spirit, two names for the same thing. A second flawed view is also a second crisis experience, but this one says it's distinct from spirit baptism. When you become a Christian, you're baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, but after salvation at some point, there ought to be another experience That is the filling of the Spirit. It's an experience, a crisis experience. There are many people in the deeper life movement, if you're familiar with that name, who take this view. There's even a man whom I respect greatly and admire his writings who takes this view named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer taught that the filling with the Spirit was an experience at some point after salvation, and he said, you ought to seek it because if you get it, it'll produce victory over sin, it'll give you new power for service, it'll give you the fruit of the Spirit in greater measure, so you better meet the conditions, and he, he said there were four conditions to be filled with the Spirit, and it was an experience that you had. A third flawed view is one baptism at salvation, one baptism of the Spirit, but many fillings throughout your life. This view still sees the filling of the Spirit as an event. It just says there are many of these events. It could happen today and next week and a month from now and a year from now. There are going to be these events in your life. This is what most classic dispensationalists teach. John Walvoord, Charles Ryrie, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, all take this view. Listen to John Walvoord. He says, the filling of the Spirit may occur many times and is an important aspect of spiritual experience. Now, I think you will see next week that those are all flawed views of the filling of the Spirit that simply don't measure up to the scrutiny of the Word of God. But why have I taken all this time? Why is this even so important? I want to finish our time together. Stay with me just for a moment as to why this even matters. Well, I want you to see this. Why is it so important? Notice the flow of Paul's argument back in Ephesians 5. Stick with me, I'm almost done. Ephesians 5, I want you to see this. In verse 18, Paul gives us the command, be filled with the Spirit. 
Then, in verses 19 to 21, there are these four participles that are all results of being filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, verse 19, you're going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You're going to give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then, beginning there and running all the way through the rest of this section, the next 20 verses... All of those practical commands about marriage and family and work all flow out of the command to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, folks, listen carefully, without the filling of the Spirit, none of those commands is possible. If you're not filled with the Spirit, as a wife, you will not be able to overcome your natural propensity and submit your will to your husband. If you're not filled with the Spirit as a husband, you will not be able to overcome your innate selfishness and sacrificially love your wife. If you're a child, you will not be able to overcome your rebellious heart and with your heart obey and honor your parents. If you're a parent, if you're not filled with the Spirit, you are going to be constantly provoking your children to anger. If you're a worker and you're not filled with the Spirit, you're going to be struggling to serve with your whole heart sincerely as if you were serving Christ. If you're a boss, you're going to be tempted to be domineering and controlling and threatening. So listen carefully, for every spiritual bit of progress, for all spiritual growth, for true worship, for healthy relationships in every area of life, nothing is more important than being filled with the Spirit. You know what this is teaching us? This is teaching us an absolutely crucial truth, and I want you to get this in your mind. You and I do not have the ability to live the Christian life. You understand that? You don't have that ability, and nor do I. If we're on our own to worship, if we're on our own to give thanks, if we're on our own to be the right kinds of husbands and wives and parents and children and bosses and employees, we are facing an impossible task. But what do we do as Christians? We jump right past the being filled with the Spirit to the practical commands. Well, let me see what I'm supposed to do. I can do this. Just tell me. Let me get my pencil and paper ready. Give me a checklist. I can make up my mind, and I can resolve, and I can do these things. The biblical answer from Paul is, no, you can't. What did Christ say? Without me, you can do something? Nothing. And then he says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is now going to be to you what I am. So without the Spirit, you can do what? Nothing. This was the very truth that gripped the mind of Augustine when in his confessions he wrote this, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and then command me to do what you will. O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. John Calvin wrote, What God demands from us by his word, he likewise bestows by his Spirit. In another place, he adds, the increase as well as the commencement of every good in us comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen, Christian, leave here this morning with this in your head. As a Christian, my only hope, your only hope of obeying God's commands to us is if God gives us the power to obey them. And that power comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. A work we can either encourage or we can hinder. We'll see how. And we'll see what it means to really be filled with the Spirit. 
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 6 of Watch Where You Step. We'll have Part 7 for you on our next program. And Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, Lord willing, we're going to cover some of the incorrect assumptions and some of the teaching on the filling of the Spirit more in depth in our next program. Let me just encourage us all to come to the Scripture, not with our preconceptions, but to allow the Scripture to say what it says. What does the Bible say? We need to come to it with open hearts and open minds, rather than allow our preconceptions to cloud the biblical truth regarding the ministry of the Spirit. That's what we want to try to do together. So let me invite you to join us next time as we look more in depth at what it means to be filled by the Spirit of God. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we want to let you know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.